Last week, we looked at the book of Matthew. We started going through the New Testament. Matthew was once a tax collector, and he had a very controversial position being a Jewish man uh, serving the Roman government. And he gave that up after he received a call from Jesus to follow him. Now, Matthew used his excellent note-taking skills, skills that he had actually gotten through the job that he had had, to record down uh, many sermons and many accounts of what Jesus had said, giving us document for us to be able to learn more about who Jesus is and his ministry while he was here on the earth. And really, Matthew's main point was that Jesus was the promised Messiah that the nation was looking for. Now, just five years earlier, actually between 55 and 59 AD, just a couple of years before that book, Mark wrote his. Mark is actually better known as John Mark. So we're actually going to be in the book of Mark today, but we're going to start a little bit later and we're going to actually start in the book of Acts and then move into Mark. So we're going to start in Acts today if you're turning your pages Mark's gospel is centered around service, as opposed to Matthew's, who was more of just trying to document who the Messiah was. Um, Mark was concerned about becoming a servant to others and to serve them well. Uh, This is something that Jesus stressed highly upon his disciples. Now, what I think you're going to find interesting about this is I think that this is a lesson that this gospel writer actually had to learn, and we have evidence of him having to learn this lesson before he wrote his gospel. Mark is mentioned outside of his own gospel in the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking through Acts in a few short weeks, so I don't want to spend too much time there, but I do want to show you some references. The first one is actually going to be here uh, in Acts chapter 12, verse 25. It says, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, this is talking about the first missionary journey, uh, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So this is the first time that we actually hear mention of Mark outside of the gospel. This isn't to be confused with John, the writer of the gospel of John, or John the Baptist. They call him John, also called Mark, or John Mark, and he goes by Mark, so he prevents confusion. Linda and I were talking earlier. She says she always uses last names because there's too many people with the same first name. Uh, So this might have been the reason why that uh, he got called Mark instead of John, because there were so many other ones. This actually right here is referencing the first of what would become three missionary journeys that Paul takes in the book of Acts. He goes out and he does a bunch of different things. Now, as it turns out, Mark actually was a bit wishy-washy. He actually flakes out. Uh, He takes the first ship back home midway through the journey. Uh, And it doesn't doesn't sit very well with Paul. Um, So... The time comes for them to take off on yet another missionary journey later on. And I actually want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 40. And we're going to see the reaction of Paul after Mark had uh, left them prematurely in the first journey. This will be the only one that we're going to look at in Acts. Verse 36, I'm going to read it in the New King James. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So they've been out a couple of times and Paul says, hey, look, let's go recap, make sure everybody's still doing just fine. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to do the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren in the grace of God. So he went to Syria and Sicilia, and they continued to strengthen the churches. So, ouch. Paul wants absolutely nothing to do with Mark because he 
I don't know exactly what happened. We actually don't completely know. All we know is that he left early. Ministry may have been a little bit harder than he thought it was going to be. Maybe the journey was rougher. We know that there weren't a lot of converts. We know that they ran into some people that were against them during their time. Whatever it was, Mark went home early while everybody else stayed, and Paul would have none of that. He's like, no, this guy, I am done with this guy. If he is not going to stand up and stay with me, I don't want him with me again. So have you ever gotten a new job, only found out that three months in, it's just as bad as the last one? Um, Have you ever started a new relationship thinking this one will be different, just to find out that the same old ruts still happen? Um, It's the same song in a different verse, and we may never know exactly what happened on that first missionary journey, like I said, um, but Paul didn't want anything to do with Mark, and this really didn't sit well with Barnabas. So Barnabas actually said, you know what? I don't think the same thing's going to happen like it did before. I think Mark's worth it. So he decided to invest in him and he pulls Mark alongside him. They kind of go different ways. But today we're going to be looking at Mark's gospel uh, with that little bit of background. And it's called Becoming Servants, Mark's gospel. We're actually going to begin our journey in Mark chapter one when we get to the next verses. Now, Matthew's, like I said, was written to a Jewish nation. It was about the coming Messiah. Mark's actually is written to the Gentiles, those who didn't have the law and the prophets and all that Old Testament history. So his focus is slightly different in the way that he writes in his approach. So today, we're going to be looking at three main areas. Those three main areas are a good start, miracles, and servanthood. A good start, miracles, and servanthood. These are the three main areas that we're going to be looking at. So first off, let's take this one, a good start. Matthew's gospel, like I said, uh, was focused on the Jewish nation. So it actually starts off with the genealogy of Jesus, which would have been incredibly important to the Israelites. However, Mark's just kind of jumps right into things as the people who don't know the history aren't really that concerned about it. And he's got to write it to the people he's got listening to his, uh, to his gospel. Now, Mark is... Um, Starts with Jesus' adult ministry. He just jumps right into it. So we're going to actually begin in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, last week, um, I had you guys bouncing around a lot. Today, I'm just going to slowly work through. So it should be a little bit easier. It won't be as hard. Um, I, uh, I, I didn't mean to make us bounce around so much in Matthew. So we're just going to progressively work through Mark. Hopefully, this one will go a little bit smoother. Now, have you ever thought about the term uh, gospel? Do you know what the term gospel means? Let's take a look at verses 1 through 3, then we're going to talk about it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way straight of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now the word gospel, we say gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but have you ever thought down and said, okay, what do these exactly mean? We use this a lot in Christian circles. We say it's the gospel truth. We say it in other euphemisms as well. Do you happen to know what it is? It comes from the Bible itself. And these four books, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's actually mentioned, the word is mentioned 12 times. In Mark's gospel alone, eight. Eight of those 12 are just in Mark's gospel. So he uses the word the most. The opening line basically reads the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel also means the good news. So the beginning of his book really starts off, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. Now, not 
just in word. He didn't bring good news just in word, but also in deed. And Mark actually will focus a lot on the deeds of Jesus Christ, the acts, the things that he does while he is having his ministry with the people. In fact, it's more so than any other writer. He talks about what Jesus did with his hands. While Mark uses less law and prophets references than Matthew, he does connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New. And that's why he actually started off with a quote from the Old Testament. And he says, you know what, this is what was happening. This does fulfill some prophecies. Because it it does. And he wants us to recognize that. Now, do you remember last week that we looked at Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Uh, It's called the Great Commission. You've probably heard it before. We talked about four different areas. There was a lot of stuff we covered last week, but there were four different areas. Do you remember what those commands were? Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. This is what Jesus left us as Christians to do. Now, the important word here that we're going to look at today is baptize. Why did Jesus tell his disciples that they were to have future believers baptized? Why would he tell them that? Part of that actually comes from what's going to come next. So there's this guy, his name is John. We call him John the Baptist. He has been called by God to go down to a river and baptize these different people. It's a physical example of a washing away of sins. These are physical examples of ideas that we have in our spiritual lives. John would preach to a crowd. He would call them to repent of their sins. And upon repenting of their sins, he would wash them in the river. Now, they would, they would confess their failures. They would confess their sins. And then they would be baptized afterwards. And John would actually dunk them in as a washing away symbolically of their sin. Putting someone in water doesn't actually wash them of their sin. Now, the entire act is actually symbolic of an Old Testament thing. Uh, that, did you ever hear of the cleansing of Naaman? So in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 5, there was this army commander. He had leprosy. He had these big white spots everywhere. It was horrible disease, scratching, and eventually you'd actually, uh, you'd actually go numb, and you would actually lose uh, body parts because of numb, not because of uh, the disease itself. It just made it so you didn't feel anything. And he goes down to the prophet of the day. His name is Elisha. And Elisha says, look, if you want to be cleansed of this, you have to go into the Jordan and you need to get washed seven times. You may have heard this story. Now, the Jordan is actually where John is currently uh, baptizing in our story. Same river. And uh, Naaman says, that's a muddy river. I could get cleaner at my house than in that river. That river is absolutely disgusting. Why would I go down there? So Naaman actually outright refuses. So his subordinate says, look, If the prophet had told you to go do some major military deed that would have been, you know, something for only really highly skilled and honorable men, you would have done it, right? Naaman says, yeah, I would have done it. He's like, then why can't you just humble yourself and go wash yourself seven times? Maybe this is what it is. Ends up being that this is a test of Naaman's faith, not of his physical abilities, but his faith. And that's actually what John is coming back to is this is your faith and getting your sins washed away by your faith and actually learning to repent of those. Now, Jesus, though he didn't need to be forgiven of sin, was baptized by John to show us this is what we are to do. So he wanted us to do this. Communion is remembering Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his body and his blood. The baptism is actually a symbolism of us actually identifying with him in death and actually getting rid of our sins and then being raised again into new life. That's the reason why we dunk. 
Now, this was his example for us to follow. Now, in this book, there is this ever-present uh, ever feel that Jesus wasn't only intentional in his, act, uh, intentional in his actions, but he was very active in them. Um, so as soon as he leaves this river right here in this account, he actually goes up and the spirit uh, of God actually directs him into the wilderness and he gets tempted by Satan for 40 days. You've probably heard that one. Um, look what happens after he comes back down into town. He starts calling his disciples in Mark chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. So skip ahead just a couple verses in the same chapter. So this is after he gets tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He comes back to town. It says they immediately left their nets. He's calling his disciples. They immediately left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone just a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went after him. Immediately. You hear that word? Immediately. Immediately. Almost as if there's a sense of urgency within this book. There's a sense of urgency in the way that John is, uh, Mark is writing these. Do you think Mark was trying to convey this urgency? I think there was work that needed to be done, and there was no time to waste. And he's trying to convey this as he's writing. The first thing we're going to find Jesus doing is he's casting unclean spirits out of a man in a synagogue. Um, people start to take notice because he's starting to do things that nobody else can do. The next thing that he does is he visits Peter's house when his mother is deathly ill, uh, his mother-in-law is deathly sick, and Jesus comes and he heals the lady. Um, and news starts to spread. Uh, and we're still just in chapter one uh, and verses 31 through 32 says this. So he came and he took her, talking as Peter's mother-in-law, by the hand and he lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she served them. At evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon possessed and the whole city was gathered together at the door. So this is actually gonna bring us up to our second point today, miracles. Our second point today is miracles. Now, Jesus has set straight forward into the work of healing people. He comes uh, and he starts healing of various diseases. In Mark's short uh, 16 chapters, there are more miracles in this book than there are in any others. In fact, there's actually three of them that are specifically only found in his gospel. He focuses on miracles a lot. He knew that Gentiles would be concerned about miracles, that they would be interesting to us. Now, if today you took a survey of the contemporary Christianity, you would find that our focus and interest, we value the idea of looking into and trying to understand miracles pretty high within the church these days. We want to understand them. We want to know why. We want to know how they work. We want to know what God is doing through them. They're very interested. We're still fixed on these miracles 2,000 years later. They hold our attention. Now, currently, our nation is fixed on superheroes. You've probably seen some of the superhero movies. You've probably seen the commercials. If nothing else, maybe your kids or grandkids, are, uh, they have the action figures. You've seen this. Now, superheroes have these special abilities, abilities to do unexplainable and miraculous things. Some use them for good, others not so much. Jesus used his supernatural ability, being God, to heal, but not just broken bones. He also healed broken lives. Jesus came to heal broken lives. Jesus used miracles to heal people and to show that he was God in the flesh. 
One such miracle that's going to really help us understand this is actually found in chapter 2 of this book. Jesus is in a home, he's teaching, and some people keep stopping outside of the window. A crowd is starting to form. In fact, there's so many people that the chapter starts explaining that there are so many people that you couldn't even get near the door of the window to even peer in. They're, They're starting to form in the street, this large crowd. Of those who had come to see Jesus was a band of friends. So pick up the story with me in Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. As this crowd is forming and everything's kind of getting big. It says, and they came to him, talking about these friends, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And they could not come near him because the crowd, they had uncovered the roof where he was. So they went down, they laid, let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. Okay, so clearly this man was in a bed and he can't walk. So his friends are bringing him towards Jesus. Clearly his need is his legs need to be fixed. Something needs to be fixed physically with this man so he could walk again. His friends see this. He sees this. Everyone around sees it. Maybe it's in his spine. Maybe it's his legs. Nobody knows, but something needs fixed. Something needs healed. But what the man hears after he's let down in front of Jesus probably surprised him, just as much as it seems to have surprised everybody else in the room. Let's read the next couple of verses, verses five and six. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Okay, so to the surprise of everybody, instead of just saying you're healed, he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. But this, this guy has broken legs. Why are you healing his sins and not his legs? Why, why would you do that? Why would you go that route? Well, you see, we call Jesus the great teacher. You see, Jesus knows not just what we want, but also what we need. And he, he can go and heal both of them because he understands what we actually truly need. But he goes for the greatest need of the man first. It's not his legs. It's his sin problem in his life. That's what needs healed more so than his legs. And Jesus goes directly at that. The sin had to be dealt with. And now, of course, only God can forgive sins. And the religious kind of pick up on that. They're like, well, only God can forgive sins. So they start questioning, who is this man? Let's read the next couple of verses, verses 8 through 12. But immediately when Jesus perceived this in his spirit, they reasoned thus within themselves. He said to themselves, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose, he took up his bed, and went out of the presence of them all, and so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus came to serve God's people. He was taking care of physical needs, but that was more of a means to an end. The physical needs was a means to an end. He actually came to heal something much worse. He wanted to heal our spiritual needs. That's what he was here for. Most of the ministries that we as Christians participate in today, we're talking about the pregnancy center. We take care of physical needs first so that we can start actually taking care of spiritual needs. That's the reason why we do ministry with other people because we start serving them in a physical way and that allows the door to open up for the gospel to start talking about the spiritual needs. This is what Jesus kind of showed us the way how to do this. But many people get caught up on focusing on the miracles more than the ministry that he was actually trying to get across. And when you get caught up on the miracles, you get discouraged or disappointed when life doesn't look quite the same as it did in the Bible. 
our day doesn't quite look the same. And what happens is if you are focusing on the miracle, you're really focusing on the wrong thing. If you're focusing on the miracle, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Jesus made this abundantly clear that he came to forgive sins. That was his primary focus. That he was here and his heart was for man's heart. If you think miracles are the thing that makes men and women believe in God, you might want to relook at your Bible. I've heard it before, and you've probably heard it in different songs. You know, I wish I could, uh, I could heal somebody, um, and, and, uh, and I could turn people's heads because of the miracle, and then people would believe. But miracles aren't actually what make people believe in God, and God's word actually shows us this. In chapter 3, Jesus enters a synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand. Let's jump into it. Chapter 3, verses 1, and four, one through 4. This is talking of Jesus. It says, and he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely. This is the religious, the scribes. He's in the synagogue, so the religious are all around him. Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or kill? But they kept silent. Now, The religious leadership is watching Jesus to see exactly what he does. Remember, we've talked about those laws. And those laws they had built up disallowed them from being able to do any work on the Sabbath. It was illegal for them to do any kind of work. And Jesus says, is it illegal to do good even on the Sabbath? And he tries to get them to understand what he's doing. But they have these hard hearts and they just won't listen. So they stay silent. It's kind of like the first century way of pleading the fifth. They're just like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to accuse myself. They just, they won't do it at all. Let's continue in verses five through six. And when he had looked around them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the others. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. They stood there in the temple They watched him perform the miracle. They were, in all reality, they were probably closer to him than you guys are to me. Most likely, they were a little bit closer than us. They watched him perform this miracle directly in front of their eyes. And what is their reaction? Is it belief? No. They harden their hearts and they immediately go out and they try to plot to kill him. They watched a miracle happen directly in front of their eyes. And the only thing it did is it brought them to anger and want to destroy him all the more. So then the question is, if miracles are not what brings people to faith in Christ, then what is? If miracles aren't the solve all, what is? Servanthood. Let's go into servanthood. When you look at a study Bible, or you're spending some time creating your own sheet or a book for your Bible, you'll be asked to find a verse in each book that we call the key verse, like that kind of sums up what the whole book is about in one, one sentence. Many will say that the key verse in this book is Mark 10.45, which says, Mark 10.45, says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. This verse comes directly, uh, the verses that actually come directly before this particular verse right here are ground shattering and their ability to flip your worldview as a Christian upside down. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 44. It's just the couple of verses right before. Verses 42 through 44, they read this. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great 
ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. Now, Jesus wanted the Christians who would follow after him in faith to understand the heart of where he was coming from for service. That his purpose was to serve others and he wanted us to follow in his likeness to serve others as well. Now, Jesus tells us that we are to be known as servants, as those who serve others. And then he cites himself as our example. Jesus puts himself up as our example because he came not to be served, uh, not to be served, but to serve. Now, over the next couple of chapters, you're going to find more examples, but there's one in particular that I want to turn your attention to today. Just two more chapters ahead in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. Should be one page flip over depending on how big your text is. My text is huge. My Bible, I can read it from like four feet away. It's great. Um, Okay, so Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. Jesus answers them. He's again in front of a bunch of scribes, the religious, just for context. And he says this, 29, he answers them. The first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is, none, there is no other commandment greater than these. Okay, so this might start to sound a little familiar. If you were here last week, you've probably heard this, but it can't be understated that our love for God is best demonstrated by the way we love others. Our love for God is best demonstrated by the way we love others. What's truly unique about this confrontation compared to the last one is the reaction of those around him. He's again surrounded by the religious, the scribes, the Pharisees. The scribe who had asked the question actually asked it to test Jesus, to try to figure out would he trip him up. Uh, and Jesus actually says, you know what, this is, this is the law, this is the way it is. And then the scribe actually, and, and odd enough, uh, he actually agrees with Jesus. And Jesus replies back to him and says, you know what, you're on your way to the kingdom of heaven because you're starting to get it. You're starting to understand it. Now, I wish that I could heal others by touching them. I wish I could speak every single language so that everyone I met, I could tell the gospel to. That'd be kind of cool if I could speak Italian. I mean, if you imagine all the things that you could do. But I wasn't given those abilities. And in all reality, to focus on those abilities, abilities that I haven't been given, is to be dissatisfied with who God made me to be. To focus on an ability that you have not been given is to be dissatisfied with who God made you to be. I need to focus on who God chose to create me to be. That means that I need to love others. And sometimes a hug at the right moment can go a lot further than healing a broken bone. It really can. I need to stop wishing that I could speak other languages and start telling the people that are around me about the gospel. Instead of saying, I wish I could speak whatever language. I I speak English and everyone in this room speaks English. And most of the people in our country still speak English. And we can talk to them fairly easily. There's a lot of people that we can tell the gospel to. Now, your mission field might not be the African savanna. It might not be the Fijian jungle. You have a much harder mission field. It's here, where your family is, where you are known, where people know your past, your mistakes. 
one of the hardest mission fields imaginable is being around those who know you. Now, it's where you've been placed, though. So today's challenge, I'm going to wrap this one up. My challenge for you today is going to be twofold. Okay, so number one, be okay with who God made you to be. Be okay with who God made you to be. Let me ask you a couple questions. Is God perfect? Yes, God is perfect. Second question, does God make mistakes? No, God does not make mistakes. If God is perfect and he does not make mistakes, it means he did not make a mistake when he created you. He did not make a mistake when he formed you in the womb. He did not make a mistake in bringing you to the point that you are today. That means he has a specific purpose for you. As long as you love him and trust him, he will show you that purpose. John Mark had issues when he started following Christ. He had some learning to do. He even quit once because the going got rough. He actually ran away from the ministry opportunity. He literally got up and walked away while everybody else was still serving because he just, he couldn't deal with it. He wasn't at that place. Eventually, with enough work and enough dedication, even Paul, who didn't want anything to do with him, saw the change. In fact, in 2 Timothy, we find in 2 Timothy 4.11, he writes these words, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me in ministry. Paul tells Timothy to send a message to Mark because he's useful. The one who he once said, I don't want to have anything to do with, is now all of a sudden useful. Why? Because Mark allowed God to work through him and allowed God to change him. And his character changed. And he became a servant. And I think part of the writing of this gospel is his learning process of learning to serve others instead of just himself. Now, my second challenge for you today is choose to use the tools that you have been given. Choose to use the tools that you have been given. God made you different with a purpose. In fact, we're told that the church body is made up of individuals that all have different form and functions. I believe that God forms each individual church for the purpose that he has for us right now, which means you are here, not by accident, but by design. We have one complete body here, regularly attending and serving in this church. That also means that there is only one open position for a nose. Anybody want it? No? And nobody wants it? Okay. Now, you have a set of abilities that I will never have. You have a range of people that you will talk to that I will never talk to. I have abilities that you might not have, and I have people that I might talk to that you might not. We complement each other. Just because we're different doesn't mean that I'm better. doesn't mean that you're better. It means that we're designed for different purposes. God designed you for a specific purpose. And we are growing as a church family, but we can't do what we are called to do without everybody being actively involved, without everybody actually stepping up and saying, God, I'm willing to do what you are calling me to do in my life. Don't let your gifts go to waste. God designed you with a purpose. Find a way to use them both here and out there. Trust God and let him grow you. If you don't know what those are, ask him. You can even talk to us. Sometimes we can uh, be a help as well. But remember, God created you for a purpose and he gave you gifts that you can use. Never think that you're not enough. He made you exactly who he wanted you to be. Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you so much uh, for this reassuring word of promise 
that we know that you have created us with purpose, that you don't make mistakes, but that you do everything knowing what the outcome will be. And Father, I thank you that you gave us each different gifts and abilities and that you've called the people here today for a purpose. Lord, help us to learn how to work together in harmony. Help us to love others. Help us to show them by being servants, exactly as you called us to be. Help us to be servants who go out and spread the good news and show others what life following you really looks like. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna call the worship team up and I will step off the stage. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful during the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We're told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known, by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us.